You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, we started our in-depth look at the life and crimes of Paul Bernardo. Paul is one of the most known serial killers in Canadian history, and his crimes are crimes that stick in the minds of anyone who was alive at the time that he was committing them. Last week, in episode 65, we talked about Paul's childhood, and we talked about Paul's crimes that he committed as the Scarborough Rapist. This week, we will move on to the crimes that Paul committed as his lusts and his deviancy grew, devolved, and became even worse than they were before. Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Schoolgirl Killer, Part 2 on Paul Bernardo. Before we jump right into this week's episode, I do want to again let you know that this is part two on Paul Bernardo. Episode 65 was the first episode on Paul, so if you want the family backstory and to hear about the sheer number of crimes that he committed when he was terrorizing the city of Scarborough, please put this episode here on hold and go back and listen to part one first. Last week, I told you that we needed to go back in time a touch in this week's episode to cover one of the really awful crimes that Paul and Carla are known for. Paul's devolution started before the Scarborough rapes ended, and the victim of that was one of the major objects of his flirtations, lusts, and desires, Carla Homolka's younger sister, Tammy. Throughout 1990, Paul would become more and more infatuated with Tammy Homolka, who was 15 years old at the time. Paul would consistently spy on Tammy, and he became consumed with finding a way that he could rape Tammy. As we mentioned in the last episode, Carla was becoming insecure and jealous of the way that Paul would look at and fantasize about Tammy. Due to that fact, she was driven to do whatever that she could in order to ensure that Paul would stay in love with her and stay with her. She would become a part of the plan to ensure that Paul not only got to have sex with Tammy, but she also told Paul that she would make sure that Tammy stayed a virgin until Paul could hatch his plan. On July 24th of 1990, Carla would lace Tammy's meal with Valium, and she stole from she stole that from her own workplace. Carla and Paul would work together, but Tammy would wake up before Paul was able to rape her, thus foiling the plan of the two people that she loved and thought she could trust. 
Unfortunately, however, that was not going to be the last of the plan or the last time that Paul and Carla would hatch such a plan to take advantage of Tammy. The two would try again five months later, on December 23rd. Carla would tell Paul that she was going to give Paul Tammy's virginity for Christmas. On the 23rd, the Homolka family had their family Christmas dinner, and then when Carla and Tammy's parents went to bed, the two sprung into action. Paul and Carla would work together to spike Tammy's drink with sleeping pills. Once Tammy was deemed to be unconscious, the pair undressed her, and then Paul proceeded to rape Tammy while Carla held a rag over Tammy's mouth and nose that was coated with halothene, an anesthetic to make sure that she did not wake up this time. Unfortunately, rape was not the worst thing that was going to happen on that night. Tammy started to choke and vomit, and Carla tried to hold Tammy down and clear her throat from whatever was blocking it, but she was unable to, and Tammy stopped breathing. Rather than use any small chance that Tammy could be revived if 911 was called, Paul and Carla went in to cover their own ass mode. They dressed Tammy and moved her into her own room and cleaned up all of the evidence of the assault and rape and then called 911. Investigators would wind up ruling that Tammy Homolka's death was accidental. They determined that she had died by choking on her own vomit. The worst part of that determination was that even though Paul and Carla had cleaned up most of their mess, they could not fix damage that was done to Tammy's face. Tammy had a very clear chemical burn on her face from the cloth, that was seemingly ignored by everyone. Even though in this case, Paul had come close to getting caught, he must have felt that he was invincible because he did not get caught. Even long after Tammy's death and after Carla and Paul had moved to St. Catharines, Tammy and Paul's obsessions were not over. For years afterwards, a regular part of Paul and Carla's sex life would see Carla acting out Paul's fantasies and pretending to be Tammy up to and including wearing clothes that had belonged to Tammy. One such incident even happened inside of the Homolka home. Three weeks after Tammy had been killed, Paul and Carla would act out the fantasy and even have sex in Tammy's bed. It can easily be seen here that Carla and Paul were both descending into crime, and that their crimes continued to get worse, and Tammy would sadly not be the last of that. On June 7, 1991, less than six months after what they had done to Tammy, the two would again be back it again. This time with a 15-year-old girl who would only be known as Jane Doe in their trials. Jane Doe and Carla had met at a pet shop years earlier, and Carla would invite Jane Doe over to their house. Jane Doe would be drugged by Carla, again using Hallison, and then Carla would tell Paul that she had a wedding gift for him. Paul and Carla would film themselves raping Jane Doe. They would keep the young girl at their house overnight, and the next day she woke up with a headache but no recollection or knowledge that she had been raped. In August, she would be invited back to the home again, and she was again drugged by the couple. However, much like with Tammy, the girl would start to vomit, and she stopped breathing while she was being raped. 
Carla would call 911 this time, but the ambulance would be called off when Carla and Paul called back and said that they had restored the girl's breathing. I honestly didn't know that this was a thing. Nowadays, I know from personal experience that you're not calling in a 911 call and then rescinding that 911 call. I'm shocked that the ambulance and paramedics did not still attend to check on the situation. This one was weird to me. One week after the first incident with Jane Doe, Paul would meet the next victim of Carla and Paul, Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie was born on July 5th of 1976. Her mom was a school teacher, and her dad worked as an oceanographer for the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Leslie also had one younger brother, Ryan. As Leslie grew up, she was always close to her family. However, as she hit her teenage years, Leslie would start to rebel against her family and most people within her life, and she would stay away from home for different periods of time as well. Even through those times, though, Leslie stayed close with Ryan, and even when she stayed away from home, she would call home and keep tabs with her parents. Leslie's family lived in Burlington, Ontario. Not long before Paul found Leslie, friends of her would be tragically killed in a car accident. Leslie was attending a memorial for one of her friends the night before she was abducted, and she had missed her curfew with her parents. When Leslie got home from the memorial, she found the door locked at home and went to a plaza that was nearby so that she could use a payphone to call a friend. Leslie would ask her friend if she could stay the night at her house, but her parents didn't allow it. On her way back home, Leslie ran into Paul Bernardo, who had been prowling around backyards of homes and hoping to find his next victim. Paul offered Leslie a cigarette, and she accepted. Paul then led Leslie to his car where he pulled out a knife, threatened her, blindfolded her, and drove her back to his house. When he arrived, he told Carla that the couple had a new playmate. Carla and Paul would again film themselves as they raped and tortured their new victim. Leslie would be raped and tortured by Paul and Carla for 24 hours and would sadly be killed at some point on June 15, 1991. Carla would say that Leslie admitted that the blindfold had moved from her eyes and then Paul had strangled her with an electrical cord. The first attempt to kill her didn't work and Paul would strangle her a second time after the first attempt only left her unconscious. Paul, on the other hand, would say that he was not in the room when Leslie died. He said that he had filled the car with gas in preparation of taking Leslie to a location where he planned to drop her and let her go. He said that he only noticed that Leslie was dead when he went to move her to the car. Because Paul and Carla were expecting Carla's family for a visit on June 16, 1991, they moved Leslie's body from the bedroom that she had died in upstairs and moved her into the basement. The Homoka family came over and celebrated Father's Day together, and Carla and Paul worked hard to ensure that nobody else went into the basement of the house. When the Homokas left, the pair would again cause even more indignity to the body by dismembering Leslie using a circular saw. 
Again, Paul and Carla's eventual testimony would differ. Paul would say that the couple dismembered Leslie's remains together, while Carla would say that Paul had done it on his own while she was at work. The remains of Leslie Mahaffey would be encased in concrete and dumped in Lake Gibson near St. Catharines, Ontario. The concrete block weighed 200 pounds, and her remains would be found on June 29, 1991. All the while, Leslie's family knew that something was wrong. Leslie did not appear for a funeral on the day that she disappeared, and on June 18th, Leslie's mom filed the paperwork necessary to have Leslie arrested when she was found as a runaway. Two weeks later, Leslie missed her birthday, and her parents feared for the worst assuming that they had not heard from her because she could not reach out to them. When the remains were found in Lake Gibson, Leslie's braces and dental records would confirm the worst, that Leslie had been kidnapped and murdered. Investigators immediately believed that Leslie had also been raped and tortured. While the remains were being found on June 29, 1991, something significant was happening in the lives of Paul and Carla. The two were being married on that very day. Unfortunately, their marriage, nor their previous indiscretions, were enough to satiate the problems that these two clearly have. After inviting Jane Doe over again in August of 1991, they would strike again on April 16th of 1992. On that day, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka would abduct a 15-year-old girl named Kristen French as she left school at Holy Cross Secondary School. Kristen was born on May 10, 1976, to Doug and Donna French. Kristen was a member of the Precision Ice Skating Team, which won many medals, and she was also a member of the female rowing team at Holy Cross. On April 16th, Kristen was headed home from school, and she was approached in a parking lot by two strangers, Paul and Carla who said that they needed directions. Kristen stopped and was giving directions to Carla when Paul attacked Kristen from behind and made her get into the car while holding a knife to her. Kristen was forced into the front seat of the car and Carla sat behind her with a fist full of hair to control her. There were many eyewitnesses of the attack. For three days, Kristen was raped and tortured at the hands of Paul and Carla, and then she was killed when she was strangled to death, allegedly by the same electrical cord that had been used to kill Leslie. Again, though, there would later be a disagreement in facts between what Paul and Carla said, and Paul, to this day, still says that Carla killed Kristen with a rubber mallet. While she was being tortured, Kristen would be forced to drink very large quantities of alcohol, and she was even forced to watch the video of Leslie's rape and torture. In the end, Kristen would become defiant of Paul, calling him names and telling him that she had no idea how Carla could stand being with a man like him. After her death, the body would again be moved around the house when the Homolkas came for a visit, and then Paul and Carla would cut Kristen's hair and dump her body in a ditch nearby to where Leslie had been buried by her family. About a month after Kristen's murder, Paul would actually be brought in by police for questioning, but again, investigators would deem that Paul was an unlikely suspect. That was even after Paul admitted to them to having been brought in previously 
by the police in Scarborough in relation to the Scarborough rapist case. This was the second time that Paul would be brought in to be interviewed by police because he looked like someone that the police were looking for. After the composite that looked just like him in Scarborough, now the police had brought him in because of his resemblance to the man that had been seen attacking Kristen in the parking lot. And yet, because the DNA was never tested in Scarborough prior to this, both times he was released because he was able to talk his way out of trouble. After all of the close calls and frankly foolish moves that Paul made though, the start of his downfall would come from right underneath his own roof. This is a key in the case of course, but also a point in time that brings a lot of questions about Paul and Carla and how much a part she was of the crimes versus how much she was also a victim that was doing as she was told. We will hash that out in another episode. On December 27th of 1992, Paul and Carla would get into a hellacious fight, and Paul would brutally attack and beat Carla with a flashlight. Carla would suffer two black eyes, bruises all over her body, and a broken rib. She would, though, go back to work only a week later, and she told her co-workers that she had been in a car accident. The co-workers did what we tell you here at GBNF to do all the time. They felt that the story was fishy, and so they told Carla's family about her injuries and their fears. Carla's parents took Carla to a hospital immediately. They certainly did have to force the issue, though. Once Carla was safely with her parents and at the hospital, though, she opened up. She told them that she was a battered spouse and she filed charges against Paul. Around this time as well, Paul Bernardo's DNA sample was finally run in the Scarborough Rapist case, and he was identified as having been the Scarborough Rapist. And that is where we will leave it here for this week. Next week, we will talk about what happened next, and I will try to lay out all of the facts for you as unbiased as possible, because as interesting as this case is for the twists and turns, and the police believing Paul's lies along the way, I think that one of the main talking points to this very day is about how integral and willing of a participant Carla was in these crimes. As a teaser for you, if you don't know the case, one of these two people is still behind bars, while the other has moved on to an entirely new life. As we finish the episode this week, I do want to shout out to all of you who talked to me on socials and, of course, remember our patrons. Thank you so much for being a strong supporter of Gone But Never Forgotten. Being a true crime podcast is difficult. There's a lot of us out there. So every like, follow, share, and patron helps us out so much. Also, if you have a case that you would like to have covered, drop me a line. I'm always interested to learn about and put cases out there for our listeners. As always, have a safe week and be better out there. And we'll see you back here again next week as we continue on about serial rapist and serial killer Paul Bernardo. Thank you again for supporting Gone But Never Forgotten.